0: Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Friday, March 20th. Uh, And that sound you heard at the top, that was um, sound recorded outside the AIG building on Wall Street. It was a protest. You might have been able to tell. Um, And uh, today, David, we have an interesting show. We look at, uh, among other things, how many toxic assets there actually are in the world.
1: And uh, and the claim that maybe some of them actually aren't really toxic. We're also going to hear a conversation you recorded from our recent trip to Capitol Hill, you talked to a congressman who admitted something that
0: congressmen rarely admit. He said he, he doesn't know what should be done. Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation, and that's in a minute. But first, the Planet Money indicator. For a while now, we've been going with relatively small indicators, you know, 1, 2, 0, 14, something like that. I want to turn things around a little bit and go with a big indicator. In fact, I want to say the indicator is just over a trillion dollars.
1: Uh, Yeah, that is how much the Fed pledged this week to spend buying things that the Fed, up until this crisis at least, hasn't really bought before. Specifically, the Fed agreed it would spend up to $750 billion buying the uh, mortgage-backed securities that are guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie and Ginnie Mae, and then another $300 billion buying long-term treasury bonds.
0: Uh, Let's just talk for a second, David, about why they're doing this and how it's different. Um, the Fed is such a confusing organization. I was trying to figure out how to talk about it here on the podcast, um, and it's not really something that you can simplify. But suffice it to say, normally the Fed just tries to influence this one interest rate. It's called the Fed Funds rate, and when people talk about the interest rate, that's generally what they're talking about. And the Fed influences this rate by buying and selling short-term treasuries, and you don't even necessarily need to know what those are. Just Just sort of assume it's this one thing that the Fed usually buys and sells. Right, they one dial. They turn it up. They turn it down. That's what they do. Exactly. And usually, this one dial, this one interest rate, is enough to stop bad things from happening in the economy. If if the economy is overheating, you turn this one dial. You raise the rate, and that generally makes the banks a little less eager to lend out money, and that puts the brakes on an overheating economy. And if the economy is slowing down, they turn down the dial. They lower this rate, which increases bank lending and juices the economy a bit so that's normally all they do is they buy and sell this one thing called short term treasuries and that causes all these other things to happen
1: right but what they're doing now is different because that old way has it's basically stopped working you know they've driven that one rate the fed funds rate all the way down to zero. The rate that usually gets the job done now is zero, and you can't turn the dial any lower. And the economy is still tanking. Mortgage rates are still higher than they want, and it's still hard to get a loan. So the Fed is moving more aggressively, and they've started buying, among other things, long-term treasury bonds.
0: Now, I know that doesn't sound revolutionary, but it's a very huge move. And I'm holding a piece of paper here in my hand that shows why they're doing it. It's a chart that shows the relationship between long-term treasury rates and 30-year mortgage rates.
1: That sounds like a fascinating chart you have there.
0: It's a fascinating (laughs) chart because basically what it shows is that long-term treasury and 30-year mortgage rates move almost exactly in lockstep. The lower the 10-year treasury rate, the lower the 30-year mortgage rate. So the Fed, by buying so many of these treasuries, hopes to drive the 30-year mortgage rate down. That's the way it works. The more people buy a certain bond, the lower the rate goes. And so the Fed hopes if it drives the treasury rates down, that will drive down mortgage rates as well. It's a big risk. It's a huge move. The Fed almost never does this. The last time they did it was in the 1960s. And uh, you got an email from our buddy, the economist Simon Johnson, who said about Ben Bernanke, the Fed chairman, Quote, this is Captain Bernanke going for the Hudson, the worst possible idea apart from all the others. Right. One of the
1: concerns is inflation. You throw this money in the economy at some point, you're going to have to take it out. And that's always a little painful. Um, One of the things I think that's so interesting about this time in general, you know, often like how the economy kind of edges one way or another, industries gradually shift over years this is that's just not what's happening now everything's happening you know really quickly i was just emailing with frank langford from our business desk who is in michigan covering the car companies and he was saying you know it's really just like a hurricane had hit so i called him up to talk about it
2: npr dearborn bureau <laughs> hey frank how are you uh what hotel are you staying at uh i'm in the uh, hampton inn in dearborn money is tight so i'm staying at hampton inn
1: so I feel like you know when we were emailing, uh, you yeah. were pointing out that like some you know sometimes industry goes industries go through kind of you know slow evolving changes, and then sometimes like everything happens at once, uh, and this, this sort of feels like that. How, what does it look like out there? I mean, how fast do you see things changing?
2: It has it's sort of fa- happening faster than anybody imagined and and faster than anybody can keep up with. Um, I was with uh, a woman who does a lot of financing for these suppliers that are just going out of business. And she's working seven days a week, living on power bars and literally running from supplier to supplier, trying to keep the money flowing. These are so these, auto parts
1: suppliers, yeah.
2: Yeah, these auto suppliers who create, you know, most of the parts that actually go in the cars, but you've never heard of the companies. They're the ones who actually, you know, build the you know, the things that go in the transmissions, the gears, the steering columns, stuff like that
1: yeah I was reading I mean the unemployment rate there is something like twelve percent right? it's, it's
2: it's over eleven percent I think yeah. so it's eleven point six so it's like it's actually it's really interesting when I first started coming here three years ago and and the you know the Washington where you and I live it was a very good economy, and I felt like I could have I could have had a passport because I was going from one economy that was you know had some some tech and obviously had all that government spending in washington and then you were going to Michigan that was already in recession um, and had been in recession throughout the entire decade. And now it's like, you know, people say it feels more like a depression. And and I think they're right because just people are losing their jobs in droves.
1: What do you see people doing who are losing their jobs?
2: Uh, a lot of people like the UAW are just looking, United Auto Workers, they're looking to just extend benefits to supplement their unemployment because there's like there's nothing out there um, really in the area to do. People would love to leave but they're they're underwater on their houses. They're like they're literally like chained to their houses. They can't get away and so they can't move down south or find something better. There's a guy at Chrysler, a spokesman that I was working with, and I actually had him on the air two weeks ago for a piece that I did. So, I called before I came out this week, and he was already gone, and he got some job back in New Jersey. like you
1: called and like his the voicemail was didn't no I, I I sent an email
2: to to him and and some other guy at Chrysler, and the guy wrote back and said, "Oh, this is Stewart's last day." and then I called I said, well, you know what happened to Stewart?" and he said he went home to New Jersey, He got a job with Jaguar and Land Rover, yeah. and the guy that I was talking to sort of described as like you know hey, lucky break for this guy." So, I mean, people are, are scrambling to get whatever they can. I'll give you an example also. It's like walking through parts suppliers. And these are some some of them are like big companies. They have big buildings, and there were just a lot of empty desks, and there weren't many cars in the parking lot, and it was like a neutron bomb went off.
1: Uh, yesterday, while you were there, the uh, government announced it was going to provide $5 billion in, uh, well, they called it financing, which is sort of funny to me because you think of car Companies giving you financing to buy a car, but they're getting financing here. Uh, How does it work? They get it's for um, this, the government is guaranteeing. If you're a part supplier and you make something uh, for a big car company, and the big car company hasn't paid you for the stuff you've delivered. The yeah, government the, is the real
2: problem right now for a lot of these companies is cash flow. They send like like say I'm you know I'm trans I'm the transmission I, I make gears for transmission. I, I send my gears up to Ford, but Ford may not pay me for forty five days, right? well, the orders are really low anyway. I don't have a lot of money to keep my place operating, but I still have to run my machines, I still have to pay my staff, and I still have to pay the electric bill, and I'm just running out of cash. And so what this will allow, it, uh, what this will allow like me to do if I'm a company is the government will guarantee the, the payment on those parts that I sent to Ford or Chrysler. Actually, really, Chrysler GM is a better example because they're really in much worse shape. And I can use that guarantee and then go to a bank and say, listen, uh, give me the money early so uh you you lend me this money based on this thing that i'm going to get paid for, and you know that i'm good for it because the government's backing it even if Chrysler or g m go bankrupt
1: so so that happened while you were out there then you went out did you went back to the part suppliers what was what was that like
2: well it's interesting because you know I expected them to be more relieved because they were really people were really freaking out um but you know their problem is. There, it takes time to set this program up. It's going to take three or four weeks. And and people that I talked to said, well, okay, in three or four weeks, you know, I don't know, another uh, dozen people will go bankrupt. That's how bad it is that literally people are going day to day. There were a, a number of this one woman who I mentioned who um, deals with financing to help these suppliers. She was saying that every week, like five of her clients just... Just go out of business. Like they turn over the keys and they just walk away. It's like they can't. They're not even winding down the companies. They just say, "Listen, I'm out of here." I mean, that's that's the speed at which things are happening, which you really don't normally see, even in a mild recession.
1: Yeah. Um, and did they immediately understand the government's proposal, or were you kind of? No, he didn't.
2: We were. It was really interesting. I had actually um, been on a briefing call with the Treasury Department. And when I came into the office of the president of this company, it's called FormTech. They make kind of rough parts for transmissions, gears that you would, you know, probably in your car and my car. They have them in a ton of cars here in the United States. And they were actually sitting there. Um, with the papers, kind of reading the briefing sheet from Treasury. And he was on the phone with people. He had been calling his congressman to try to make sure that he can get in on this deal, this program. So, you know, it's one of these things. They had gotten some briefing from Treasury, but but when this stuff comes down, people just start scrambling. And they try to figure, you know, they try to position themselves. They try to understand how this thing going to work. Am I going to get the money? Because GM and Chrysler are actually going to decide who gets this so there will be you know not everybody's going to benefit and um this program is not designed to save the industry it's designed to save the really strong and most important suppliers and the other ones um they're going to die
1: in theory the taxpayers i guess are on the hook for some of this if you know general motors or someone goes bankrupt right because then the government is stuck guaranteeing payments true. that aren't coming right true yeah hey um can i ask you just a reporter question sure what kind of car do you drive when you're out there?
2: Uh, I have to drive American. I am right now driving a Pontiac G6. I'm paying an extra couple bucks a day. And the reason is when I got there, they offered me a Kia.
1: Who makes, who makes the Kia? Oh,
2: so every time I come here, I've, I've got to get an American car because if I show up at UAW halls um, in, in something else, um, something foreign, um, people just get pissed off. And I'll give you an example. When I was here in January for the auto show, I come in, it's like 10, It's snowing. And the guys, are like, they have almost nothing for me at Enterprise. And they say, listen, we'll give you a Prius. I'm like, if I go in there with a Prius, I'm going to get beat up. <laughs> so I'm patting around in the snow, like looking around the lot for something. And I end up with a Dodge Grand Caravan. <laughs> That's a huge car. It's like C300 or something. And I'm like <laughs> one guy. And I'm like, I don't want a Grand Caravan. But what am I going to do politically? I just can't show up in a Prius because it's like it's like asking for a fight. So I spent the entire week uh, barreling around Detroit in a Grand Caravan. All
1: right, Frank, thanks
0: very much. Sure, man. All right. Um, There you go from the hurricane-strewn streets of Detroit, basically. Um, Now, David, part of our mission here at Planet Money is to answer your questions. And we get a lot of questions about toxic assets. Frankly, we ourselves have a lot of questions about toxic assets. Yeah. Like, here's my list. How many are there?
1: Where are they? What are they worth? And when are they all going to go away?
0: And if I eat one, will it kill me? (laughs) You can try that. Okay. (laughs) These are all critical issues uh, because toxic assets are, of course, one of the things at the heart of this financial mess. The big banks have these so-called toxic assets on their books every quarter. They report huge losses on them.
1: And if you're like me, you wonder how much like when is this going to stop? How much bad stuff is out there? And so someone directed me to this great uh table on the Standard & Poor's website which I sent to you. Do you have it?
0: Yeah, I do. I do right here. And, and by the way, it's Standard & Poor's. That's one of the rating agencies that gave all this toxic stuff the thumbs up during the housing boom, gave a lot of these toxic assets AAA ratings which basically it said they weren't toxic. It said they were totally safe.
1: Right. But as you can see on the table uh they've changed their mind. <laughs> right.
0: We're looking at a lot of charts here today on Planet Money. <laughs> right. It's chart
1: day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you could see a lot of these things that were AAA are now been severely downgraded, something like half of them, I think, overall, right? Yeah,
0: Right. It's really amazing. I mean, if you look at some of these things that like, you know, AAA was supposed to be as safe as a government bond. It was supposed to be the safest thing you could have. It was supposed to be basically cash. And I'm looking at this chart, the AAA rated, so there were roughly 2,000 AAA rated CDOs they were originally rated AAA, and now almost exactly half of them have been downgraded. So they were off by half. They were 50% wrong. <laughs> right. So, but, you know, I'd say this
1: chart made me feel a little better because, uh, you know, in some of the documentation with it, basically, this is three, originally were $3 trillion worth of assets, which I thought, okay, that's. I can deal with that. Let me say it. Three trillion dollars there. now I feel better. You know it's finite. Uh, these are the toxic assets on these pages here. We can get through it and we're done. I found this table comforting, except that uh, that three trillion dollars, it turns out that's not it. there's more.
3: There could be uh, globally there's I've heard the number 12 trillion and uh, in the US it's certainly some the estimates range anywhere from 8 to 10 trillion.
1: So that is Mike Thompson, he's a managing director at S&P and I should point out he does not work on the rating agency, the rating side of things. His clients are the folks who own this stuff and they want to know how much it's worth.
3: We we deal with money managers that you know have investors ranging from, you know, the retired dentist uh, or widowed who lives in Florida to, you know, uh, an endowment for a, a small college to a pension for a union okay, and
1: how much money are they how much money do these places control? I mean we're we talking many billions or
3: oh. Uh, yeah. I mean, for example, I mean, it's not uncommon for us to look at a uh, a, a, a portfolio of structured in the tune of 50 to 75 billion dollars.
0: <laughs> and this is why it's so hard to do the work that we do, because he just like drops in phrases like a portfolio of structured. Yeah. And what he means is <laughs> structured financial products, which what he means by that are mortgage backed securities, basically collateralized debt obligations. Anything with a complicated sounding name that you would buy as an investment, that is a structured product. Um, and they come with like 400 page documents just to describe the details. Right. I have, I have, I have one of them here. It's, it's great bedtime reading. Oh, you have some um, structured right there.
1: I do. I got some structured. Yeah. I talked to Thompson because he did this really interesting study, which suggests that some of the stuff that's labeled toxic and that we call toxic actually is not. So the study they did, they looked at mortgage backed securities. This is the kind of vanilla type stuff, um, where the mortgages involved, uh, We're were made to prime borrowers, so people with good credit ratings. And Thompson and a colleague ran some economic models, and they found that even if the economy gets really, really bad, if you own one of these toxic assets, he says you're
0: probably going to get all your money back. Yeah, but come on. I mean, what have we learned about computer models? and all this thing. They're not, they weren't right before. Why should we trust them now? I know, I know. But what, what do
1: you say? Listen, what he says makes some sense, right? I mean, you know how these things are set up, right? You get a pool of mortgages. And uh, if you own a toxic asset, which you basically own is a spot in line to get paid from people when they pay off their mortgages in that pool. So if the pool is made of homeowners with good jobs, and you're the first in line to get paid, he's saying, you know, it looks like you're going to get paid.
0: Right okay, well, that seems make, that makes sense so 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 that means that these things should be basically trading at, at what they were originally sold for. That means that they should be what is the market price of these things? Uh, he says
1: it's like 50 cents on the dollar. <laughs> so you'd take a 50 percent loss if you had to sell it right now.
3: The market pricing is painting a portrait of the economy that's so dire it, that it makes it, it's even worse than the Great Depression.
1: Far worse. So you're saying if you take the price that these things are trading for right now and you use that to say, well, what does that mean the market thinks is going to happen to the housing market and to the global economy? It says it's, it's really, really going to hell. They're putting in an incredibly, incredibly pessimistic scenario.
3: And, and it's to the point where it's ridiculous. I mean it is – it's to the point where it's absolutely ridiculous. But you know, that's a tough argument to make because the market is the market.
0: Right. And don't we all trust the market? I trust the market. I know. I know. I know. I mean it's
1: a fair point, right? right, There are people out there with a vested interest saying that's what I think it's worth, right? But his argument is that this one of the reasons this stuff really isn't trading is that the people who are partying with it for fifty cents on the dollar, those are the people whose backs are really up against the wall.
3: Personally, if I had like, you know, a billion dollars of my own capital, I'd go on a buying spree and buy every prime senior tranche that I could get. But, you know, they're not as easy to come by as you think. The big money managers don't want to do something incredibly galactically stupid. They do not want to sell good assets. I've actually had uh, a chief risk officer say, help me convince my board not to make an absolute disaster by selling these things. We're going to take a huge write-off when if we just hold them to maturity, we'll be fine. And the funny thing is, their maturity is about two to three years out. So they have two to three years out and their problem goes away and they're made whole. And their hardest time they're having internally is just communicating and educating um, the people that, you know, ultimately at the board level to make sure they're comfortable with this approach.
0: OK, but these are toxic assets that maybe aren't so toxic. They're a small part of that maybe $12 trillion of the stuff that, that Thompson said was out there, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, these could be maybe a couple trillion or something. but
0: um, The good ones. Yeah, the good ones, yeah. So, so if his clients had the good stuff, where did he say where's all the where's all the crap? That that is a great question, and he doesn't he, does,
1: he doesn't <laughs> oh, where is it right? Because he, he says every time he goes to these people, they all say uh, our stuff's great, you know. And part of it is that people who have junk aren't going to come to him and pay him money to tell him that it's worth zero, right? They already know that, basically. Yeah, they already know that. He says it's pretty clear, uh, you know, that the big banks have a lot of the bad stuff on their books, which is why the big banks keep having to declare multi-billion-dollar losses. So I, I asked Mike Thompson if he could, if he could tell, you know, from their write-downs, how bad was the stuff that the banks
3: owned? Yeah, I can tell you that if they're writing it down, it's bad. <laughs> but I can't tell you that is that the full amount of the write-down should be. I mean, w- look, we we we've been from the last three quarters. And this is a rough, you know, this is rough because there's a little bit of, you know, maneuvering they do. They, they redefine assets from level two to level three, and there's some funky stuff that goes in there. But the point is, is that it's going down about, you know, 50-plus billion a quarter. They, they don't give you the transparency to all, in, all at I once see. say, here's what I own. And I wonder if they did and we did find out, if the investor community did find out uh, that what, you know, all these guys own were like the mezzanine equity tranches. What you know that that's when you get nervous
0: because as we've pointed out, some people might judge the banks to be insolvent. If the banks basically came clear and said we own all this stuff and here's all the toxic stuff, then they would be judged insolvent,
1: right? Uh, and when he says mezzanine and equity tranches, he
3: means the bad stuff there.
1: Um, I sh- I should tell you though that our conversation managed to end up on a on what might be a good note.
3: I guess let me not you know be a complete you know uh, dark day person here. Let me let me point one other thing out. Uh, out of this. You know, this is a scenario that uh, a lot of investors sort of are starting to subscribe to, which is, you know, when you saw the banks say, well, our underlying businesses were profitable, and they manage- they can manage to take write-downs every quarter, if they can continue to do this for several quarters, you know, what you, you really think happens here is that, when this, this is kind of going to run its course. In two to three years, it, this, all this, this stuff goes away. The key thing is not to have the banks take a torpedo before.
0: So two or three years, here's one thing that doesn't make sense to me, Dave. Our mortgages, mortgages are like 30 years long, right? So why is he saying two to three years, it'll be done?
1: Right. So that confused me, too. But it turns out that these pools of mortgages, they they actually kind of, you know, people in people who have the mortgages, they prepay or they refinance or they default. So the pools actually evaporate faster than 30 years. So you tend to know where you stand. And he says, you know, in a few years, we'll know where where everybody stands.
0: So basically, his advice is just sort of like close your eyes and just like hold on for another three years <laughs> yeah don't it'll all be too... okay <laughs> he
1: says uh, it's not his advice but he 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 says you know that may be what the government's doing you know if we just kind of hold on and and maybe don't look too closely at things everything will be okay
0: yeah it seems like a long time to wait but uh you know i mean the, the point is that there aren't really that many good solutions so maybe wait maybe trying to wait it out is the best thing um and you know we we you know this brings us to sort of our next thing on the agenda. We we you and I Dave and Adam Davidson our colleague were up on Capitol Hill the other day talking to a very scared group of people. <laughs> you mean uh, lawmakers. Right, because they are in charge of figuring out how to keep this financial disaster from happening again. And specifically we were speaking with Congress people um on the House Financial Services Committee. That's the committee chaired by Massachusetts Democrat Barney Frank. And that committee, everyone says, is, if not the key player, at least one of the key players in charge of rewriting the rules of our financial system. You know, everyone says this will be the biggest regulatory overhaul since the Great Depression. And we talked to a lot of the people who are going to be rewriting this legislation, who are going to be making these new rules and when you talk to them, the tone is a little different than normal.
1: Yeah, I didn't hear a lot of partisan bickering. I mean, there was there was some of the sort of party line. But I, I would say a lot of people we talked to were genuinely concerned about the magnitude of the task ahead of them.
0: Right, and confused. And it, that led to a lot of them saying things that you almost never hear congressmen and women saying. For example, listen to this conversation that we're going to play for you. I had with Congressman John Campbell, who's a Republican from California, he started our conversation with a fairly stunning admission, and it's an admission that I heard from a lot of the members of the committee that I talked to, um, but it's an admission you almost never hear from elected officials.
4: I can tell you that, for one, I'm not sure, even in my own mind, I mean, you know, if I were king, uh, I, I'm not sure what I would do at this point, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that uh, in that viewpoint. This stuff is not easy. Um, there are a number of different alternatives, a number of different thoughts uh, on how to do it
0: has this crisis that we 're going through now has it challenged any of your previously held beliefs about sort of the role of regulation what should be done? Is that something that that you 're going through now
4: it has you know i 'm a generally republican, small government less regulation type of person, uh, but it is clear to me that in this case uh, that what happened here was a lot of people going around a system, creating a shadow banking system behind the regular banking system. And it clearly broke down. So, yes, it's caused me uh, to question that. And I can tell you, much to the uh, surprise, I think, of some of my colleagues here, uh, is that um, I'm favoring some – again, I'm not sure exactly what form it should take – but some very tough regulation. I mean, this thing is ugly. Uh, Back last September, October, um, we came within a hair's breadth – of runs on every bank and the entire financial system collapsing. Uh, that, frankly, scared the – I'm not sure what words I can say on on NPR, but you know what I mean. It, 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 it scared the hell out of me. And I, um, I do not want to go through that again. I do not want to see anybody go through that again. And so I'm certainly willing to take much more aggressive steps than if you had asked me this a year and a half ago than I told you I would have done.
0: It's it's interesting about this crisis is that the way because there must be there's a part of me and I think everybody who wants to just sort of say like, you know, AIG Lehman Brothers Bear they made they they made bad bets they're in the marketplace you live by the sword die by the sword and it just has this you know this this logic and and yet we. For very good reasons, or you know, can't let that happen, but you know, you must wrestle with that all the time, right?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, AIG made some dumb decisions in a normal thing, they fail. They fail, the stockholders lose their money, everybody loses their job, nobody gets their bonuses. Same thing with Lehman and the rest of these, but because of this interconnectivity part, which is the first part of the regulation that we're looking at, because if AIG goes down, probably many other banks, not just the United States, but worldwide, big ones, big people, go down as well, which then starts to bring down some others. And that's what this too big or too interconnected to fail. And I think what we want to get to, and it's one of the questions I asked in the hearing today, is, well, we don't want anything that's too big to fail. Because then, by definition, we can't let it fail, which means that the people running that company will make decisions knowing that they can't fail and if you know you can't fail you'll make a lot of bad decisions and and there has to be you have to allow failure and one of the debates in fact i, I listened to it somewhat going on today is well all right if it's too big to fail can it be regulated enough that it won't fail maybe um I, i'm not sure right
0: so it seems like those are the so you got two sort of options here which is one sort of you know sort of heavy regulation that will break companies up before they get too systemically important which is probably you know is like has is put it is you have to do delicately it's going to put an onerous burden on lots of businesses you're going to have to have like regulators with a lot of power or allow them to get too big to fail but then just sort of regulate the crap out of them basically and it's sort of those are two i mean that's is that is that sort of what's on the table now you think is that do I have that right?
4: yeah, I think you do now, now there was a third option that was presented in the committee today, uh, which was an interesting one uh, that I heard, which was well, um, that you pile on regulatory requirements as an entity gets bigger and more interconnected and and those regulatory requirements will be very costly uh, let 's take a capital requirement you know you require a bank to have a certain amount of money in reserve to cover what they have loaned out. And and if it's 10%, as you get bigger, it goes to 12, then it goes to 15, then it goes to 20. Well, at some point, the cost of doing that, because that's money you can't lend, that's money you have to just have on, it, it may become too costly to get that big.
0: The sort of the type of sort of attempting to understand and attempting to learning and the the sort of the comments that you're hearing from your colleagues. Are you is it is how unusual is this this set of hearings versus other hearings that you've been a part of, other debates that you've been a part of in, in Congress?
4: Well, I think it's very unusual because of the complexity of the situation and because there aren't kind of two camps. I mean most um, bills, most issues have two camps, you know, I'm for this or I'm against this or I'm for this or I'm option A or option B. And oftentimes those are largely down party lines. Um, in this case, uh, I'm not quite sure there's, that there are two camps. Um, and, and uh, you know, you hear some Democrats questioning things that would indicate perhaps they're to the right, if you will, where I am on the issue. And you'll, and you'll hear me and others like me maybe say something which would appear that I'm to the left in traditional uh, parlance. Of, of some of the Democrats, and, and so um, I think it 's so big, so complex, and so difficult that you you just don 't have the the two camp type thing at, at this point, although there are all are those that uh, are definitely in the don 't regulate and regulate everything as much as we can type thing uh, i don 't think either one of those are going to prevail though yeah.
0: is is the fact that there is this sort of um, sort of confusion about the issue, there's not like these two camps sort of settled into. Does it actually, uh, for you, does it actually free you up in a, in a weird way? Tremendously so.
4: Um, uh, I'm, I'm really engaged in this because I know I I can deb- engage, and this is not a situation where uh, the majority Democrats are going to do what they want to do, and our goal is and our objective is just to complain about it. Uh, present an alternative and let the public decide later, but they're going to do what they're going to do, and that's what's going to happen. I feel like that's not the case here Um, uh, for a couple of reasons. The issue is so big and so important. uh, I I don't think, uh, and this would be true if Republicans were in charge too, I don't think the majority party wants to do this all on their own because it's just too, too significant a change, and the public... Probably won't go for that. Uh, so, so that enables those of us in the minority to to participate. But also, the other reason is because there isn't like this big ideological line. There isn't this clearly drawn camps. Um, uh, and and to me, it's an intellectual exercise too, which which I find uh, uh, very fascinating. And it's a problem solving exercise, which I also uh, I've always. I've always liked to do. I've, um, before I lost my mind and went into politics, I was in business, and I was essentially a startup and turnaround guy. I went into to businesses that were in trouble and tried to figure out how to turn them around. And so we now have an economy in trouble, and this is a little bit uh, – same sort of thing on a much bigger scale.
1: <laughs> hey, uh, so that's great. We, we are going to be checking back in with Congressman Campbell and other members of Congress as they try and rewrite the rules of our financial system.
0: Yes, and, uh, and, and see how they sort of proceed in figuring out what to do and, and where they eventually come down.
1: Hey, I think that does it for our podcast today. Keep sending us your photos and your economic indicators. We've posted some of them on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm also going to throw up all those charts about the toxic assets that we were talking about today. Uh, that's it. I'm David Kestenbaum.
0: And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you very much for listening. I hope this life don't get you down. The dirty old family.